Bonjour, guten Tag und hallo. Welcome to Transitions with Barbara. Today's guest is Bueno David, and I'm super excited to speak to you today. Bueno, you are a lady with many traits and amazing stories. You're, you are like the person for Transitions with Barbara because you made many exciting transitions. So I want to start yeah. right here. Who are you? What made you who you are? And what is your big goal? Well, there's three questions there, and I didn't hear the last one. So I'll start off by saying my name is Gweno Davis. I was born Gweno Williams in North Wales in a hospital in a place called Bangor, but I grew up in West Wales. Uh, my equity name, so I'm a member of Equity, which is the Performers Union. And my equity name is Gweno David. And David was the name of my brother who died back in 1983 of Hodgkin's disease. And I wanted to honor him. And so I have taken his name and I've used that. And I don't feel like Gweno Williams anymore. I'm Gweno David and have been for a very, very long time. So everything I do, I do with him as part of it in many ways. So what made me who I am? Well, I grew up in West Wales and uh, we were brought up in the middle of uh, nowhere, really. Uh, the uh, nearest neighbours were uh, in a cemetery. So I was quite quiet. We never had any problems with the neighbours. <laughs> uh, but what we did have was a really wonderful mountain behind the house and we had rocks. And what made me really a very brave and determined person was the fact that that was where my playground was. I used to climb the rocks on the mountain and I used to go rock climbing uh, on the seashore. And also I was a runner. So in my teenage years, I was uh, a competitive runner and my event was the 400 meters. And that's when I learned how to become a coach as well, because I used to coach children at the age of 12 and 13. So I coached other children in athletics and cross country throughout my time in school. And I was also the house captain. So I have to say that running has been something that's been very central to who I am, because uh, as a runner, you have to overcome pain. You have to become very determined. You have to set goals. You have to really get out in all weathers, whether you like it or not. You go out and you face the elements. And those are the things that have made me who I am. The elements, all of those, uh, the, the, the countryside where I grew up, and the fact that if we wanted to go into town, we had to jump on our bike or walk in. And it was about five miles, which is about eight kilometers. So all of those things have made me who I am. Yes, this is already super exciting. And it's beautiful that you honor your brother in this way. That's a very beautiful way to honor him. And well, David. Super so I love both of them. Yes, amazing. So now what I was wondering is, can you take us a bit more into your journey, really, you know? Because now you did many things. You started with running. I know you're still running. Often when I meet you, you're still out running. You're like, I'm going to take a run or I'm just coming back from a run. So it's like in your DNA, you can't help it. You keep running, don't you? Even now. 
Even now, and I'm 65, and I'm really, really lucky to be able to run at this age because basically uh, my journey hasn't been a very easy one. And <clears throat> there have been many challenges that I've had to overcome. I, talking about my teenage years, I was going to be a physical education teacher and um, I had a really unpleasant fall when I was about 16, which at the time I didn't realize was going to affect the rest of my working life and all of my life, in fact. Um, and uh, so I went to physical education college to become a PE teacher. Well, running has always been a major part of my life. And I ended up being the reserve for the Welsh team for the 400 meters and uh, was destined to go to a physical education college to be a physical education teacher. But unfortunately, I fell on some very hard sand when I was about 17, and that changed the course of my life entirely, although I didn't know at the time. Uh, I went to physical education uh, college, and I had to change course after the first term, and I was absolutely devastated. I was so lonely. I was so sad. I was depressed, really, uh, and didn't know what else to do. So I stayed on in college and trained as a teacher and wow. became a drama teacher. But I didn't want to be a teacher um, uh, of anything other than physical education. So I then went off to be an au pair in Brussels, and I ended up staying in Brussels for five years. And when I was in Brussels, I uh, started teaching English as a foreign language, and I taught English as a foreign language in uh, in the European Commission, in banks, in Turnusen, in Holland, in uh, the Inlinguist School of English in Ghent. And also, I had a par parallel career as a singer. I'd always sung, uh -huh. and I'd never seen the potential, really, for becoming a professional singer. I, I had no idea how you could do it but ended up singing uh, on the street in Brussels and busking and then singing in restaurants, buying a guitar, then singing in concerts and making a record. So that was the beginning of my parallel career. And I've always had two parallel careers, uh, one in creativity and the other in knowledge sharing. And I've done that throughout my adult life. So although... I was heartbroken and there's no other word for it. It turned out okay, really, in the end, um, because I ended up doing things that uh, I had never, ever dreamt that were possible. And I've been a professional performer since 1980. And I've worked extensively for the BBC. Uh, I've got some work for the BBC in a couple of days' time. I do live television. Um, I've been a performer. Uh, I've got a one-woman show about the French singer Edith Piaf. I write lyrics. I uh, direct theatre and education, or have done in the past. I'm, uh, I've got a meeting later on tonight about uh, directing a film. My life is a very creative one. And I think if I'd gone into the direction of being a physical education teacher, I think that my potential would never, ever have been realised so I have to look at that as um, being, you know, I made a lemon, um, I made lemonade out of lemonade. So I made the best of a bad job, really. Yes, 
That's utterly amazing. And I mean, this happened at such a young age where, where you just have this one big dream, like you said, so I can totally understand that you were devastated. But the way you turned your life around is really, really amazing. And who would have thought just a fall on very hard sand could um, yeah. cause so many problems in essence. Yeah. Do, do you feel pain? Did you feel physical pain with it? Yes. Going uh, to, on? to be honest, uh, I've been in physical pain either from my knees or from my, uh, my knee or my low back since that time. So, uh, because what happened was um, I have been involved as well in three car accidents. I've been very unfortunate uh, for, and they were all, uh, two, two accidents were when vehicles rammed into the back of my vehicle mm -hmm. and one was a sideways shunt. So basically I've lived with daily chronic pain since August, 1988. So every single day I'm in pain. That's but terrible. And, and you never my life saw though. it. You're positive. I heard you sing. I mean, you, you, you shine so brightly. One would never think, how do you get over this pain? How do you distract from that pain? Well, I have a choice, really. I can give in to it or I don't. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to give in to anybody or anything. Yeah. And um, I've ended, I ended up in uh, pain clinics and one pain clinic I went to was all about, you know, they were going to give me regular injections every six weeks. Uh, and I said no. And then they did things like a denervation where they destroyed a nerve. Well, that had potential of paralysis. But, you know, when you're in pain, you'll do anything to come out of pain. But what I realized in the other clinic was, Uh, that you have to focus on what you actually can do and not what you can't do. So there's lots of things I can do. And uh, yes, there are lots of things I can't do. I can't stand for any length of time. Uh, running is painful, but it's worth it. And that's what they also teach you at the pain clinic is if something is worth the pain, then do it. And running is always worth the pain. And I can't go very far, right? So don't think, I mean, I've done marathons in my time. I did a marathon. I've done half marathons. Before uh, the car accident in 1988, um, I did do half marathons and I did a full marathon uh, because what, what happened uh, um, after I fell and hurt my back was um, I had a condition that exacerbated a condition called chondromalacia patella. And so that's a softening of the kneecaps. But what happens is that they, they solidify or they become hardened um, by around the age of 23, 24. So I was told uh, when I was 18, if you don't leave this course, you'll be walking with a stick by the time you're 30 and you'll probably have to have new kneecaps. So there's no choice. There was no choice at all. So, but... After they said, you have to stop doing all sport for seven years, I think it was. So I stopped doing sport for seven years. Then went back to it, went back to my running. And in that time, uh, before the car accident, I went and did lots of half marathons. I was on track to be chosen for the Welsh team, for um, the Welsh um, half marathon team. So I was always coming in the first three. But, you know... We can't always have what we want in life. So uh, the fact that I can just run, uh, I probably run about a mile and a half, two miles. And that for me is, is 
you know, it's enough because it's my creative space is where I come up with ideas. I run alongside a, li- a river. You know, I feel I get fresh air. I get really good thoughts. I feel free, you know, so I can't run a marathon again and I never want to either. So really, I just focus on what I can do, not what I can't do. So I think that's one of the things that we really need to think about in life because, you know, we we don't always get what we want. And the thing is to want what you get, really. And actually, my life, I, I love my life at the moment. I'm creative. I'm writing songs. I've got my one-woman show. I've got a jazz uh, set coming up in the summer. I just spoke, spoken today with the guy who accompanies me. Uh, I've got that coming up. Uh, I've got some fabulous coaching work coming up. I've just recently qualified as something called a well-being, well-being facilitator. And that's um, someone who works with... Uh, uh, film and television sets to protect people's mental well-being on uh, television and film sets because the creative industries have a very, very, very high incidence of mental health issues. And that's to do with the long hours working culture. It's to do with bullying and harassment. It's to do with working away from home and not having those structures around you. So I'm going to be there on uh, film sets and people will come to me and I will be their voice. So I'm going to be non-judgmental and uh, it's very, very exciting. I'm really uh, very, very excited to be able to do this because it's a pioneering project which we are doing in Wales Mm -hmm. and uh, it's with a company called uh, Six Foot from the Spotlight Mm -hmm. and uh, I've recently been trained up uh, as one of their wellbeing facilitators. Uh, It's a pioneering project. There are 10 of us and it's supposed to start quite soon. I was supposed to start back in um, March, but unfortunately I had uh, blood poisoning and uh, lost six weeks of work. Um, So there we go. It's life. You know, when you're self-employed, you have to accept that this is the way things are going to be. Yes, absolutely. You have overcome so much, but the new avenues you go into are really, really amazing. And this project sounds fantastic. And really, it's very, very much needed. I think for a long time, people did not focus enough on mental wellness. And it's such a huge part in people's lives. And it has such a big importance, you know. Just like you said, when your dream gets shattered as a young age, it's depressing. It's heartbreaking, yeah. you know. And you those situations when we feel alone it is so important that we have somebody who we can reach out to and like you said non-judgmental I just Mm -hmm. listen you know you have empathy but you don't judge and you try to help and encourage so this is amazing the way you do that and well I I think having been in some very dark places in my own life I can uh, empathize with other people and there's a difference between empathy and sympathy and somebody spoke, um, told me uh, a good description, which I thought was really, really important. Mm-hmm. Empathy is when someone is in a hole, you get down there in that hole with them. 
sympathy is when you're standing on the top looking down at them. And because I have been in some pretty deep and dark holes myself, I can actually understand what people are going through. So I think I'm really well placed to be working on this. And it does bring all three strands of my working life together because um, I've been a professional performer since 1980. I've been involved in equal opportunities and diversity since 1998. And I've also been involved in coaching and leadership uh, development uh, since that time as well. So all of those skills that I've gained, that they will really come in useful here. And one of the the, the issues that I, I'm hoping uh, we will be able to do is to destroy this taboo about mental health. Our mental health is just as crucial as our physical health. Yes. I totally agree. One really comes with the other, you know, and you, you can be in greatest shape and still falling apart, right? Physically in good shape, but falling apart mentally or the other way around. I mean, it is so, so essential. And we've all been going through extremely tough times since the pandemic, you know, lives have changed, people have been isolated. So I think it has become more and more evident. And I think people are braver to, to mention it, you know, to be open about it, you know, mm -hmm. that it's needed. And I think the uh, encouragement in those communities are also amazing, you know, where people really are like, come and speak and we, we all have your back. We all support you and you do this beautifully. I absolutely love this project. And I also heard you sing and you have such a beautiful voice. You've been on stage, so you know also the pressure to be on stage, you know? I because do. I mean, that's a tough thing in itself, you know, mm. to always be in the spotlight, I can imagine. Well, can, can I just pick on up on something yeah. that you said? Absolutely. I think what has, has caused this pan, uh, the uh, pandemic, really, we've had, we, we've had one pandemic, but we're going to see another one. And the pandemic is going to be of mental health issues. And the, the, the most crucial thing that you said was isolation, because there are lots of studies that have been done about addiction. And one of the biggest uh, factors for addiction is isolation and loneliness. And you see this a lot in young people. And uh, we are involved with Elaine Sugar and uh, Elaine is doing some fantastic work with young people. Yeah. And young people have had such a terrible time during uh, the COVID crisis because they are isolated. They are shut off from their peers. And it's difficult enough for them going through puberty with all of those different uh, ideas that are going through their heads about their sexuality, about their gender, about where they fit into society and all of those issues. And they can't even share that with their, their peers because of the physical isolation. So, you know, um, that's one of the reasons why there's been an epidemic and huge growth of mental health issues. Depression levels now are twice what they were before um, um, we had the COVID crisis. And that's a lot to do with people having to be on their own. I'm really good at being on my own uh, because I've had to um, work on my own for many, many, many years. But I know that lots of people have a great deal of, uh, of problems dealing with that. Um, 
So, you know, we have to try and get communities back together again and, you know, engage with people and make them feel supported. Because, in fact, I have uh, someone who's in my own life who is a creative person and uh, she's had some real knocks because of uh, COVID. I mean, I lost all my creative work, all of it which was a huge, huge issue because uh, the one woman show that I have, which is called Passionate About Piaf, mm -hmm. uh, we had, I three years ago, I had a life-threatening condition. I had uh, blood clots on my lungs and it was misdiagnosed for three weeks. And oh, it was, terrible. yeah, it was, yes. But I came through it, so I'm yeah. here. It's fine. Thank God, but yeah. what, yeah, thank God. Um, However, what I did realize at that time was that any of my dreams, any of the things I wanted to fulfill in my life, I actually needed to get on with them because who knew what was around the corner? Yes. So I decided then and there that I'd always wanted to take my one woman show about the French singer Edith Piaf, which I'd had a lot of um, uh, you know, um, kudos for here in Wales. I wanted to take it up to the West End. So I, I did. I managed to get it up to the West End in a really fabulous location called ZL's Brasserie and Crazy Cock. Fabulous little theatre. Yeah. I had about 80 people there in Piccadilly Circus in the West End oh. and it was sold out. And we did the one woman show there. All, all the tickets were sold out. I had a standing ovation. I had two encores. And we were on a real roll and I was taken up by a production company. We had gigs set up. And um, the last gig I did was in uh, the last day of February 2020, uh, 20, 2020, okay, two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was, we had loads of uh, gigs lined up and that was a sellout. It was on Penarth Pier, which is not far from here. Yeah. And then uh, I had COVID that day, actually, and ended up in hospital the next day. And because people didn't know about COVID at the time, yes. they, uh, you know, they said, well, your inflammatories are very high, but we don't know what the problem is. So they said, go home. So mm -hmm. anyway, three weeks after that, Britain went down into lockdown. And yes. since that time, I've only had one uh, performing gig. So I lost all of those gigs. And not only did I lose them, but there were five of us in the production company. Yes. So the, the accordionist, the pianist, myself, the lighting technician, the, the person who did the publicity and everything, we lost all our work. So, you know, and One they say that happen. COVID's coming back. So I don't know. I'd yes. love to think that we can outdo our show again, but who knows? Yes, and right at the height of the show, you, you made it to the West End, which is the place to be, really. It's utterly yeah. amazing. And it um, Piaf, so you also are very passionate about the language then, because I heard... J'adore la langue française. Ah, c'est super bien. J'adore aussi. C'est génial. And where does the inspiration come from? Why Edith Piaf? Well, because because I was a street singer in Belgium and um, my then uh, partner, uh, who became my husband, um, mm -hmm. 
was, I suppose he introduced me to Edith Piaf. I suppose uh-huh. I'd heard about her, but I didn't uh-huh. know much about her. But I, she became my role model when yeah. I was a, a street singer because I thought, well, if she can do it, then, you know, maybe I can become um, a professional singer. And yeah. what was really strange was when I was busking in Belgium, yeah. I used to sing Welsh songs there. Um, and then when I came back mm-hmm. to Britain, yeah. somehow or another, I ended up singing French songs. It was so bizarre. And yeah. then I, yeah, and then somebody, because I was singing in, in uh, uh, multilingual cabaret shows, yeah. I was singing in German, I was singing Kurt Weil songs and doing some Good Italian. Yeah. I love Kurt Weil. Yeah. Um, so we were doing some, you know, I was doing international cabaret with a company called Triangle Theatre. Yeah. And as a result of that, somebody asked me if I would take the lead role in a student production in uh, the Sherman Theatre here in Cardiff. And uh, and I said, yes, stupidly. So I went and it had a, a lot of uh, acclaim. Yeah. And about a year after that, somebody got in touch with me and said, will you come and do your uh, show up in Theatre Cloyd? And I said... There is no show. All the students have gone away. There isn't a show. And they said, well, will you come up and sing those songs? And I said, "Okay." And then I thought, oh, well, I'll write a one woman show. Never having written anything like that ever before. I thought, I'll write a show. So I did. And I performed it and it went really well. So I've been doing that show more or less. uh, And it was published in a a book. And um. What is the book's title? We all need to know. My audience wants to know. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. Ah, um, one like woman. That. Oh no, no, no! It was the the one woman show was in the one woman one voice, but bef- woman, because that I did that performance yes. when I was physically well. Okay, I can't do that show anymore because uh, there was a lot of movement involved in it. So yes, I just I, I'm, I sit for a lot of the show now because I yes. can't stand for that length of time. So it's a different show now. Yeah. Uh, but the book I have written, I've written a book about women in comedy, and uh-huh. it's called "Stand Up and Sock It to Them, Sister Funny Feisty Females," yes. and I started doing this when I was doing a master's degree. Uh, I had a young daughter at that time and my performing life was getting quite difficult because um, my husband was working away and one of us had to be at home. And because he because he had a good job, he was working away in London. He was paid quite a lot of money. So um, I ended up looking after my daughter. Well, I wanted to, to anyway. And then I did. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. When you get to your mid-30s as a woman, the roles start to shrink anyway. There aren't that many roles left. So it seemed like a good idea. Early. 30 years. Oh, well, anyway, but it's a fact. Makes no sense, yes. I know, it's a fact, though. But, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'd have a lead role in a, in a film. And I was, you know, in my 20s and early 30s, I was working all the time. I had radio. I had television. I was in films. I was um, doing theatre and education. There was lots and lots of work. Um, And then when I got to my mid-30s, I realised that the work was just disappearing. Hmm. So anyway, I went to do a master's degree with the aim of making films about women. And 
got my, it was a master's degree in women's studies, yeah. uh, social science, got my master's degree with my daughter. She was two years old when I started. So it was quite, diff- it was quite <laughs> difficult. So my husband was working away, uh, but we managed. Um, and I started doing uh, some, uh, yeah, some research on women in comedy because I loved comedy. And so it ended up being a book. I went to university to do a master's degree in social science in women's studies. And the result of that was this book. Stand up and suck it to them, sister. Funny, feisty females by Gweno. Yes. Amazing job. That's beautiful. funny. This is beautiful. Yes. Thank you. So basically, uh, I love doing comedy roles. I've always loved doing comedy roles when I was in school, when I was in college. Nobody else wanted to do the comedy roles apart from me. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Brussels, I worked, uh, I, I did some performing with the English Comedy Club and they were comedy roles as well. So mm-hmm. and I loved, I've done lots of comedy roles on television and when I went to do my master's degree, I wanted, to, I had to do a thesis, a 20,000 word thesis. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to do something about comedy and why women were not prolific in it. So what yeah. started out as a five uh, interviews with five women yeah. uh, ended up into a 20 year project uh, with 94 people worldwide. Wow. So all of those people are included in this book. They are. And some of them may have just given a snippet. They may have given just a little word of advice or whatever. But I interviewed 94 people and including uh, the first Muslim, the first black, the first uh, South African, the the oldest, the youngest, the tallest, the shortest, um, all sorts of women with very, very uh, um, uh, different sorts of experiences because I wanted to really have a complete picture. Oh, I also have the first Indian uh, uh, female stand-up comic there, you know, some of the pioneering women in Britain, the ones who were in um, the alternative circuit. So it's a very comprehensive book. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to find out what were the barriers stopping women from being prolific in comedy? And what I did find was the same barriers are exactly the same barriers in education, in law, in politics, in architecture, in television, in uh, everything. So all of those barriers that women encounter in comedy, they encounter in every other Uh, direction as well so really what the study is is a deconstruction of the glass ceiling through the prism of my passion which is comedy Mm -hmm. and also it's just full of really really brilliant stories about women who have managed to make you know a success of this working life so it's a very comprehensive book it was for sale from through uh, a company called Parthian but yeah. I've uh, decided to take it away from Parthian and I'm now thinking about the next step because I think I might want to republish it in a different form. What do you want to change? 
I want to incorporate um I want to incorporate what happened during the COVID uh, period of time because that I think a second edition would be a good thing um, because there were some issues about editing uh, that I wasn't very happy with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what I'd like to do is uh, because during COVID, one of the things that made me um, happy and made me uh, survive was comedy because I took part in two comedy courses every week and they, they were to, um, Every week we had Zoom courses. One was an improvisation and the other one was just a comedy course to write material. And those people became my friends and we'd check in every week and we'd have a task. So, and we also did COVID. Um, We did some Zoom performances. Mm -hmm. So I think those are some of the things I want to uh, incorporate because Zoom has really... um, really changed the world that we live in and I think that it's going to have just as big an effect as the industrial revolution has had on us and the reason why I say that is um, for many years I was an expert in equal opportunities and I spent so many hours trying to persuade um, professional uh, people that it was fine to allow their workers to work at home and one of the big big barriers that I would encounter is they didn't trust their workers so what has happened now during COVID is they've had to trust their workers they've had to and they've realized that people are more productive when they're in charge of their working environment uh, to a certain degree yes they all miss the you know uh, talking around the the uh, water fountain you know, and you miss those interactions that you might meet somebody in, in a corridor. But what is really good is you can have a meeting with somebody in your pyjamas. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is you walk from your bedroom to your office or whatever. You know, you do. You can save up to about three hours of travel time. Yes. You know, and that is time that can be used productively. Uh, you sp- save money on petrol. You know, all of those issues that, you know, the the people I was working with hadn't anticipated. And also, where are you based? I have no idea where you're based. I'm in Houston, Texas, actually. I'm in America. (laughs) Far away from you, and we can speak just like this. It's a great comparison. I love this idea to compare it to the Industrial Revolution. I think it is. You know, I think it's as powerful as that time because, you know, I've always wanted to, uh, I, I feel sometimes I'm a little bit of a big fish in a small pond here in Wales, and I've always wanted to access a bigger, wider, uh, global audience. Yes. And I didn't know how to do it. But yes. I have to say that I've taken part in, in loads of different podcasts um, worldwide during the COVID crisis. And if that allows people to know about me, then that's brilliant because yes. there's no other way I would have accessed that uh, previously. So yes. I think it really will transform our working practices and our working practices as women. Especially as women. I totally Especially agree. as yes. women. That's beautiful. Because we are not very good at networking. 
I do courses on networking and uh, men are a lot more confident. Uh, they'll go up to people and they start talking. They don't have that issue. I don't have that issue. I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> I always have done. In fact, yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. When, yes, when I used to grow up, when I used to grow up, right, I'd sit on milk churns yes. uh, just by the house. And I just sit there and I would just wait when pe- until people passed and they didn't pass very often. And I would just jump down and start talking to them because I was just so desperate for human contact. Yes, we, I we, we were stuck in the middle of nowhere. So we did, people didn't pass very often. And I was a very sociable human being, yeah. you know. So I've never had any issue. I always talk to anybody. If I'm sitting yeah. next to somebody on a train, yeah. I'll always start a conversation you know, and most women aren't like that. Yeah. But I, I do think that this this enables us to network globally. And I think that that's a very, very good thing. And I've come across some incredible networking opportunities that are just for women. Yes. Which is great. Yes, it's utterly amazing. I totally yeah. agree. Like, I am so excited that I had the opportunity to meet you. Who would have thought, you know? I mean- Yeah. I'm a German in America meeting this amazing lady over there in Wales. And it's just, just amazing. It is utterly amazing. And um, you mentioned Elaine earlier on too. She pulled off this amazing event, this outstanding event that we're attending here too very soon. And she really brought the world together. As she a has. female, she's very inspiring this way, isn't she? Oh, she I love those people together. I do too. And I share the passion about youth work like you do also. You know her affirmations. And yeah. she just loves on everybody, embraces everybody, highlights and supports everybody. I yes. can hardly see her sleep because whenever, wherever she supports everybody, you have a tiny post somewhere, she still responds and you're like, how we are like because we're in different time zones you know Mm. sometimes you would think she's sleeping and Mm. and that is yes that's also this female empowerment isn't it Mm. that we like are encouraged to come together I think that's also the reason for me why I studied languages because I wanted to communicate for me it was always the vehicle you know the more languages I speak the more people I can reach out to and and I found that so fascinating I speak five languages and I love them all. Yes. What are all your languages? I know French. I know English. Welsh by itself is a language. I love when you speak it. And I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds so beautiful. Yes. It's a stunning, beautiful language. And it's a very, very old language. Very, very old. And, you know, I spent all of my life trying to protect it and encourage people to learn it because we are we only there are 20 percent of us in Wales who speak this language and ever since I grew up we I mean actually we were ridiculed when I was a child for speaking Welsh whereas there's been a huge change and we are now working towards independence and one of the things I did um, when uh, when I was in lockdown I made a a film I've written uh, a trilogy of songs about independence because I do believe very strongly about independence of uh, nations. Yeah. Uh, I the first song I wrote was about Scottish independence, which is called Ali Pagu Brath, Don't Give Up Hoping Hannah. Then there's a Welsh version which is called uh, Clear 
Clue Lice of Dragon Rio, Hear Sound of Dragons Roaring. So there's three songs now, and I made a film for both of them. Yeah. So that was another thing. So I did end up uh, directing films, which is really yeah. good. And uh, but talking about the other languages I speak, um, speak Netherlands. I speak Dutch. Hablo español también. So I speak Spanish. I love speaking Spanish, but my Spanish isn't very good. I did up to A level, uh, which is you know, secondary level here. Mm-hmm. But uh, my Dutch and my uh, Flemish, uh, well, I speak Flemish really because um, uh, I, I that's what I learned. I, uh, I learned to speak West Flams. I didn't learn to speak, which is West Flandern uh, Flemish. Yeah. The the language that is, is taught in Belgian schools is Algemeen Beschaft in Netherlands, which is, it's like Queen's English. So mm-hmm. I don't really speak Algemeen Beschaft in Netherlands, but uh, people can understand me. So, um, and I love speaking my languages, but I don't get an opportunity very often. I had a, a, a short-term job not so long ago, about three years ago, when I was working in the tourist, tourist office. Um, and I had an opportunity then to speak my languages, but I don't get very much chance, really. So to be able to sing in French is fabulous. I can imagine, but like I said, Welsh is so beautiful too. We have friends, German friends that went to Scotland and they moved out to nowhere too. Remember how you described your life? You literally have to take a boat to get to them and their nearest neighbor. There is nothing. That's how far away they are. And they wanted to raise their kids, you know, out in nature and... You know, they had their own goats, you know, and drank goat milk, had everything they needed, you know, to survive. We weren't like that. We weren't like that. It was, I know, it was quite rural, but not like that. <laughs> yes, but when I when I heard you speak and you're such an outgoing person, like you said, for you, that must have been like an island. And they were literally living an island style, but the kids were little, you know. Eventually, they went to college and into the big yeah. world, too which must yeah. be quite an interesting journey as well. But like um, with your language, the fact that you are doing all those movies and keep it going, that it doesn't disappear is so important and so amazing. And then you mentioned a German singer. So clearly, you know, a bit of German as well. And while you sing, I love it. You, you learn the pronunciation so much better. It's like French. It's such a musical language, you know, yes. when you sing, je ne regrette rien. So it's just like, you know, beautiful. It's like yeah. my emotional language. I feel like some things are better expressed in one language than the other if you have the opportunity. I to agree with you. Isn't that interesting? What languages do you speak? So a German um, is your German, first language? Yes, German is my mother tongue. And then I learned English um, in fifth grade and French in seventh grade. And I took my A-levels in English and French. And I have my master's in English, French and German. So It was always this big passion of mine too, but simply really to be able to communicate with more people, share love and passion with more people, you know? So I always saw it as a vehicle. You did it in such a beautiful artistic way. Um, I did it through the classroom. I always liked theater too. So like I make my kids um, do many role plays. German, Germany has characters. Yes, and so I love using this because that's also part of our culture that I love, you know, <clears throat> the the fairy tales. Yes, 
<laughs> oh yeah, of course, of course. A very old uh, set of stories that yes. um, were very prolific, and they're still. In fact, my my mother's cousin, who is yes. a couple of years older than I am, she's a world expert on the Mabinogi, um, and she goes to America to lecture on them. So if you get an, an opportunity and you're interested in uh, stories, yes. check it out because yes. they are really, really interesting. Yes. And I think, yes, it's part of your heritage and culture that just passes on. You know, you can ask any German they know of fairy tales. So I guess it's similar to you. You grow yes. up with it, you know, just like everybody has their nursery rhymes. And it has a lot of values in it, too. You know, if you listen to them closely. And it was the first way of entertainment, since you are an entertainer, right? We started yeah. with telling stories, and you spoke a lot about the power of storytelling, too, and you do it so well. I love, I could listen to you forever. I could sit no. here for five hours and listen to your stories. No, because you, no, really, the way you convey them and the background, why you do it and what made you do it is really, really inspiring and beautiful. And you you have so many um big names that you've met too that you haven't mentioned you know pictures with you with with people that you admire what are some of those well Joan Rivers I met Joan Rivers when she was uh she came to Cardiff in 2004 I think it was uh -huh. um and it took me a whole week uh, to be able to meet her But yes. I was determined because I absolutely loved her. When I was growing up, I used to love Joan Rivers. Yes. I also used to love um, oh, Lucy. I love Lucy. I loved, I mean, so we got a lot of uh, American uh, television, mm -hmm. you know, I suppose mm -hmm. in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And I used to love all of those, uh, Mary Tyler Moore and yes. Lucy and Joan Rivers and everyone. But it took me a whole week of uh, negotiating with the uh, the the stage manager of St. David's Hall where she was performing. And I was absolutely petrified when I went in to meet her. And I took in my, because uh, the book hadn't been published by that point. And I took in the, uh, the proposal for the book. And yeah. I said, would you like to have a look at it? And she said, nah, she says, uh, don't give it a me. She said, you'll accuse me of having stolen your idea. <laughs> so anyway, but she was so lovely. She pulled me right in and she only came up to about my shoulder. So, uh, and she was very sweet and she gave me a packet of five lipsticks and uh, she hugged me and she was really sweet. And uh, another person I met was Amy Schumer, mm -hmm. who's well known in America. And this is a funny story. Yes. What happened? Uh, Well, I went to, uh, I, have a, um, I have a friend, well, she's a friend, and she's the smallest female stand-up comic in the world. Oh. And she's called Tanya Lee Davis. Okay. And um, I met her back in, I think it was 2004 in Edinburgh in the French Festival. Mm -hmm. And she's in my book. And uh, she, I, I met somebody, so this is another long story. Oh, my God, I got long stories. Anyway, I went to, to uh, Los Angeles back in, I can't remember when it was. I think it was 2004. Yes. Um, and I went to Los Angeles uh, to do a program. I'd been commissioned by S4C, which is the, um, the Welsh television channel. I'd been commissioned to do a program on my mentor, 
on her 90th birthday. My mentor was called Elinette Phillips, and she was the only woman ever to be crowned twice in our national Eisteddfod, which is our cultural festival. And um, so she was a really, she was a real kick-ass woman. And Elinette was my, um, my mentor and friend for over 25 years. And on her 90th birthday, she used to go over to America. She was, um, she was born on the same day as Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also good friends with Edith Piaf. And uh, she used to go and stay with Edith Piaf in Paris and had all these amazing stories about how Maurice Chevalier was wrapped up in a in a, a um, in a carpet on the uh, Piaf's floor. And and she met Picasso and oh, all these amazing stories. Wonderful. Anyway, yeah, she was. She was a real she was a real amazing person. And we, we were like. We were like that. She was so kind to me. She was yeah. so supportive of everything I did with my writing and my performance. And we went to see Elaine Page do a show about Edith Piaf yeah. in the new theatre here in Cardiff. And she mm-hmm. turns to me and she said, Elaine Page is not a patch on you, she said, which gave me a bit of self-confidence. Anyway, yes. so it was it was her birthday, 90th birthday. And Elinid had gone to uh, New. Uh, to, she'd gone to Los Angeles, and the people that she was friends with in Los Angeles, there's a Welsh choir there, and they'd organised a few concerts where she was reading her poetry. So, anyway, after we'd done the filming, which was about four days, I decided I was going to stay in uh, Hollywood because I was <laughs> such a lovely. Uh, I was such a lover. Uh, What's that word? I was such a lovey, right? Because I love all things Hollywood. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, so we were staying out in, uh, I don't know where it was. Uh, Can't remember. Um, um, So we had a car, an open top car that Elena had been driving around in. And we had a gopher, like somebody who's helping us to organize things. Yes. And the gopher was taking the car back. So I said to the crew, I said, oh, well, I'm not coming back with you now. I'll see you back in Cardiff. You know, I'm going to stay on for a few days. And they said, where are you going to stay? I said, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I had no idea where I was going to stay. You so they said, it was time to stay a little longer. <laughs> it was time to stay a little longer. So uh, they said, oh, well, the gopher's taking the car back to Hollywood. Do you want to go with her? I said, yeah, fine. I'm going to stay in Hollywood. Uh, so... I jumped in the car with her. We went and uh, went along Sunset Boulevard and I eventually found a nice hotel to stay in. She took the car back so that I had my hotel. And then I realised it was 100 metres away from the original comedy store, which is the world hub of comedy. And this place had been set up by um, a wonderful woman called Missy Shaw who really is the world queen of comedy. So anyway, once I found out that uh, the comedy store was just up the road, so I went up there and I met this amazing guy called Jeff Scott on the door, told him I was writing a book, and he allowed me to come. He said, I'll put your name on the door, and you just come in every night. So I did. Awesome. Just like that. Yeah, just like that. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) 
I just have some, uh, I had some amazing, uh, you know, I, I kept in touch with Jeff. We became Facebook friends. He uh-huh. put me in touch with lots of people for the book. And that's how I met Tanya Lee. So anyway, going back to my my original story now, which was about um, how I met Amy Schumer. Yes. So I'd seen Tanya Lee came, uh, she used to come and, um, uh, when she came to Cardiff, we used to go up for lunch and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said to her, I'm going to uh, uh, New York. I said, where do I go and to see some good comedy? And she said, oh, you've got to go to the comedy cellar in Greenwich Village. Okay. So I was going to um, uh, New York with my choir. And uh, so um, so we went there and I knew that I was on a mission. I had to go to Greenwich Village and I had to go to the cellar. Okay. So there were a, a few of us, there were four of us that were just walking around and we found the cellar and it said, Amy Schumer is playing tonight. I thought, I've got to go in there. I've got to go and see this woman. So I went in, uh, and I said um, to the door person, I said, um, have you got four tickets for Amy Schumer? He said, no, he said, sold out. And I thought, oh, oh I couldn't believe it. So anyway, we went off to a... Um, a Vietnamese restaurant and I sat there and I was just boiling inside. I thought, I've come all the way from Cardiff. Amy Schumer is on. I'm going to see her. So all of a sudden I said to the, the, the women that I was with, I said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to go to the comedy cellar. <laughs> I went back to the comedy cellar and I said to the guy, I said, oh, look, I've come all the way from Cardiff. I want to see um, uh, Amy Schumer. I'm writing a book about women in comedy. Will you let me in? And he said, go on then. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> anyway, so I went and I saw her and I came back and I spoke to this guy and I said, I owe you a couple of pints of beer, right? Yes. He said, I said, where does she know then? He said, <laughs> oh, go on then. And she was up in the bar. So I went up to her and I said, oh, hi, my name is Gwendolyn Zabiv. I come from Cardiff. I'm writing a book about female stand-up comics. Will you be in it? And she wasn't very friendly. No. But anyway, but I managed, I got a couple of photographs with her. And yeah. um, obviously she wasn't very friendly. She didn't want to meet me, did she? You know? No. Who would? Katie, how could she not? <laughs> anyway, but she did give me a couple of quotes. And there are um, parts of uh, some work that she had done, uh, which was all about, you know, the, the terms and conditions of comics female comics, uh, you know, they're pretty awful, to be honest, uh, uh, very often. And I've, I've had this in my own career as a singer. You know, you'll end up changing in a toilet because mm. they don't have a room for you, you know? And this is, these are the sort of working conditions that you have. Yeah. Anyway, that was the Amy Schumer story. It was a very long, protracted story, and I'm so sorry, but we did very go by uh, Los story. Angeles as well. Oh, so. it was a very good story, and... It gave me even more insight also into um, the way that you have connections on all sides with Edith Piaf. It's so utterly amazing, yeah. you know? So I loved it. It was the perfect yeah. story to share. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, Elinard was so supportive of me, you know, and everything I did with um, the Piaf show. And I was very privileged to be able to sing in her funeral. And, uh, you know, she was a good friend as well as being my mentor. And that's one of the things that is really, really key. 
I try and mentor as many young women as I can. Um, and uh, I have a young woman in comedy who I mentor. She lives in West Wales. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also mentor a young man who is involved in the creative industries in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. And I have been uh, mentoring a young woman in uh, in Toronto. And I think it's our, you know, we need to do this as a legacy as women who've encountered um, really difficult environments. Yes. We need to enable other women. It's our duty. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yes, I through you, I've also met the gentleman in the refugee camp who does amazing work indeed. Yeah. That's very, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I do hope I'm going to be able to help him um, in a more practical way because yes. he's very keen for me to raise money. Well, I can't do it. I don't know how to. It's, I'm not yes. interested in, I'm more interested in the creative aspect of it. Yes. But I am helping Fidel with his English. Yes. I am helping him network. And I'm also, uh, when I get to be doing the work as a well-being facilitator, I do yes. hope I'm going to be able to find uh, the right environment so maybe companies will be getting rid of you know old machinery and maybe I can maybe get that stuff over to him in yes. Kakuma but he's very keen he wants to build a school and he wants to um, leave a legacy which is amazing really but he yes. is doing some fantastic work yes. so I'm yes. very proud to be li- linked with him. Yes so like the people that you are um, helping and supporting are going ways because I think you have this this burning desire this total passion and so I think whoever you take under your wings will grow immensely because you have the experience so. and the passion no I'm very certain of it it's really like you're really passing it on I mean you are a living legend now I mean what all you've overcome and what you've done and the things you I feel really humble when you say that I have to say I'm not a living legend I get very grumpy with pain on a regular basis I can assure you but I don't stop it from you can be grumpy and still be an amazing legend you know I think both is possible (laughs) well thank you so much for saying that you know I mean there are people who have to put up with worse than I do I just you know I try to make the best of my own life yes Uh, I, I, I don't like whingers I don't like people complaining. I try not to dump my my pain issues on anybody, but sometimes I do, and that's inevitable because living with uh, severe chronic pain on a daily basis is no fun. It's yes, no fun. Imagine. And over all those years with technology and um, medicine, finding new things, there's still nothing that can help the pain? No. No. I do, actually. What I have found, um, because... Because I've got hypermobility in L4S, L4L5S1, what mm. happens is that if I twist, mm-hmm. that'll put my back out. If I stand for too long, that'll put my back out. So basically, there's the only thing that could actually change it is to have um, a structure. I could have uh, titanium rods put in, but mm-hmm. that's a very dangerous operation. And I was... Um, I was suggested that about 20 years ago and mm-hmm. they said well it could help but it might not and I met somebody in America um, whose husband had had these titanium rods he was a yes. dentist yes and basically they failed they he hen- ended up having uh, regular um, 
infections and mm. he died eventually of an infection caused by the titanium rods. So to be honest, I would rather, well, I, I found a way of manipulating my own spine back into place. Uh-huh. And the, the one thing that has helped um, is uh, CBD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will take a CBD tablet once every three weeks. And that seems to help, you know, just generally. But um, no, it's just, you know, it's like every day, uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, I just have to hope that it's going to be a pain-free day. Most yeah. days aren't, but I just, you know, I manage. I do okay. And um, as I say, you know, I I can still do a lot of things. Uh, I'm aiming to climb up Snowdon, which is the highest peak in Wales this year. I did it last year. I managed to do it with uh, lots of painkillers, but yeah. I wanted to do it in memory of my dad um because uh it's it's quite you know it's something i only did it when my daughter i was three months pregnant with my daughter and i did Uh it then and the last time i did it was with my um last year but this year i'm intending to go with my daughter who's now 30 years of age (laughs) (laughs) so we're gonna i think i've got one snowden summit left in these old bones and then I'll yes. I think I'll give it a I'll give it a miss then yes but, but to, to finish it in honor of your father with your daughter is quite the great finale yeah I'd like to be able to do that yeah so you know I think really looking back on my life yeah it hasn't turned out like I thought it was going to turn out but it's been a very rich life you know yeah. it's I've had some tremendous tremendous experiences Yes. Really, really tremendous. And um, yeah, I, you know, somebody said to me yesterday, oh, we were talking about longevity. And she said, yes. oh, we could now live until we're 125. And I thought, no, thanks. I don't want to live that long. That was <laughs> daily chronic pain. No, thank you. No, I don't oh, think so. But you have so many amazing projects in you and things to do. Yeah. Don't stop now. <laughs> no, no, I haven't, I'm not stopping now, but I'm not. You no, know, no, I mean, but I'm saying don't put any limitations. If, no, if you're no, given no. 120, take them all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, um, health is wealth. And that is true. And once you lose your health, then life does take, you know, it, it, it has a different taste to it. And, um, you know, yes, we would all like to live to 125 if we are in good yes. health. Yeah. But um, I, um, I, I, I told you about this uh, condition that caused me to have uh, blood clots. I've also had a blood clot in my eye oh. and that means I've lost some of my sight and I have to have regular injections and to have a monthly injection until I'm 125. No, I don't fancy that. Thank you very much. That doesn't sound so good. Yes. No, it's not very fun. It's not much fun, but there we go. I, you know, I mean, I have to say that uh, I'm very grateful that I live in Britain because um, I was talking the last time I was in the, um, the, um, the eye clinic I was talking to somebody and uh, she said that um, because I don't know if people in America are aware but we have the national health system which I will fight tooth and claw for until my dying um, breath because this is one of the things that makes it worthwhile living in this country and 
if I had had these conditions living in America, I would have lost probably um, my house, my home. Um, so I'm very grateful to the NHS, the National Health System, yes. because this woman was telling me that, you know, for her injection, she had two injections, yes. uh, one in each eye, and they cost £1,600. Yes. Uh, about $2,000. So yes. if you're having this every month, can yes. you imagine... Oh my God, yes, this is why we're still recuperating because you shared it and I think this is going to be amazing in your second edition, you know, what impact it really had, especially on the creatives that we need more than ever, you know, especially comedy, don't we all need to smile, you know, no matter what, you know, I think well, it's yeah. so urgent and important and yes. Um, and I saw several things that you wrote about it, too. So I totally admire it as well. Um, when I lived in Oxford, I could see that, too. It's, you don't really have to worry or be scared to go to a doctor because, you no. know, you're taken care of. And mm -hmm. I grew up in this um, safety in Germany as well. So I, I share the appreciation of a wonderful mm -hmm. health system. Because it can be really scary. Like if you really sit there, you have to do something and you just don't have the means. And yeah, they say, well, something you do, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you're aware, but the person who founded the National Health System yes. was a Welshman. And he was in Bevan. Yes, he was a Welshman and he came from a place called Tredega. And, yes. uh, and you may be aware of someone called Michael Sheen. He's yes. a Welshman. Uh -huh. Well, uh, I happened to be sharing the stage with Michael Sheen in Tudigo when we had uh, this, I think it was the 70th anniversary of the National Health System. And Michael Sheen uh, was there and he spoke about, uh, spoke very passionately about the National Health System. Yes. And I spoke, I did a speech for the leader of the Plaid Cymru Welsh Nationalist Party who was not there. Yes. So I read out her speech and I also raised the Welsh National Anthem at the end of the event. Yes. Uh, that's one uh, of the things that I love to do in all of our uh, meetings. Uh, we that's a tradition here in Wales that at the end of any sort of meeting, we sing the Welsh National Anthem. And you may have seen recently, uh, Wales finally got into the World Cup uh, football final yes. in well, the World Cup football competition in... Yes. Uh, um, I'm not sure where it is, Far East somewhere, Middle yeah. East somewhere. Yeah. And uh, But we have a fabulous man here called David Iwan. And you might have seen on the television uh, him singing a song called Ama Ohid. And that's become an anthem, really. Ama Ohid stands for We're Still Here. And we've, uh, the Welsh speakers in Wales, we have been threatened we have been they have tried to obliterate our language but we're still here and uh this is now the um i don't know if it's the official language uh, uh, official anthem of the welsh uh football team but it's certainly yes. something that's performed before every single game and he's become a mascot so yes. check him out david yes. Ohid. Absolutely. It's, you know, it is so inspirational. <laughs> it sounds Fabulous. amazing. Yes, I will absolutely check that out. So before we end, now you now that you shared that we should end with your beautiful anthem because you have a beautiful voice. 
So before I do that, one last question. How do my listeners reach you best? Well, I, I think um, you can get hold of me on Gweno David. That's G-W-E-N-N-O-D-A-F-Y-D-D. That's D-A-F for Freddie, Y-D-D, at Mantol. That's M-A-N-T-O-L dot co dot U-K. That's the easiest way. I have a link tree which shows you I have a website. So if you Google Gwen or David, you'll find me some way. Um, uh, but the easiest way is to send me an email, gwenodavid at mantle.co.uk or my link tree, which uh-huh. is uh, link tree forward slash gwenodavid. So excellent nice thing for you. Thank you so much. Yes, I will share that with the audience. And yes, please. Um, finish us off with your beautiful singing. What would you like me to sing? Shall I sing a French song? I love the French songs, but I really want your anthem because of your Welsh culture and values. Okay. My hen laden had I and han me Glad beir da chantorion en wagion o fri. Ai gwrol rhebelwyr, glad carwyr tramod, dros rhyddid collasant ei gwaed. Glad, glad, plaid iol rwy fi'n glad. Tyrar mor yn fyr, i'r byr o ffai, o byfed i'r hen iaith barhau. Beautiful. Thank you so very much for this beautiful song. It really is the perfect ending to a wonderful conversation with you and hear your story and you inspire me and all my speakers. So thank you. Merci beaucoup. Vielen Dank. De rien. <laughs> C'était fait avec plaisir. Merci à toi. Merci. Namaste. Namaste. Okay, bye. 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 <laughs>